Welcome to episode 646 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Righto, team, welcome along to episode 646 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsom and Bevan James Iles. How are you going? I'm good. Merry <laughs> Christmas. This is coming out on Christmas Day. We're recording it. We actually we put our families yeah. aside, didn't we? Kicked them in touch. Well, to be honest, John, I could have, because you know what's happened? Joe's jo- left me. She has. I wake up on Christmas Day alone. Mm-hmm. I cried for the first two hours, but this year I was like, it's okay because John's, John's coming around. around. He's here. Yeah. And his kids are going to wait to open their presents until you get home. That's right. Yeah, we're going to be here at four o'clock this afternoon, so there you go. Uh, Iron Talk is proudly brought to you by Extreme Endurance. Your lactic buffer. And our patrons. And it's name for you, Jombo. We've got Scott, the million dollar man, McMillan. Katie, the pole vaulter, Wadwiak. And Olaf, the icebreaker, Lindbergh. And names are pretty good. And I tell you what, if you want to get a nickname, go to www.imtalk.me and it can be a Christmas present to John and me. <laughs> there you yeah. go. Uh, this week's show, so we are in the holiday season now and we are pretty much pre-recording all the shows. So um, just a couple things that are going to be happening today. So a couple weeks ago we caught up with John Hancock and he is our world leading, mm-hmm. what, what do you call it, swim? Swim run, uh, Breaker or Ertula or there's another one coming out that you're going to find out as well. And uh, he has... Given a really good, he's done good work for us actually. So he's going. We talked to him for a while, and then we always given a resource. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And what we're doing over the Christmas time is basically each show we're going to do an interview. That's a new interview, and then we're going blast from the past, John. We are, and this is a blast from the past episode. Was it seventy nine? We're going back to interview with we did with Simon Lessing. Got no idea what's in it, but uh, Simon Lessing was always we had him on Legends as well. So I've got no idea. What I we remember the about. first time we interviewed him. Mm. So before this interview, we ring him up, and I can't remember what we said to him, but he made it because Simon Lessing's got real dry, dark humour, mm. and we did not know how to take it. Mm. And he did because he just made this joke, and we were like looking at each other, thinking, "Oh my god, this guy's a right cock." And, <laughs> And, but he wasn't, he was joking, but we just didn't know how to take it. And then yeah. he goes, guys, I'm just kidding. And we're like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so he was pretty great. So it's going, that's going to come. So we'll basically do John Hancock and then Simon Lessing. Before we start, John, one question. What's your favorite thing to eat on Christmas Day? I like bread sauce. I wouldn't say it's my favorite. Bread but it's sauce? The only what do you mean time bread pudding? No, bread sauce. What's bread sauce? It's basically milk with white breadcrumbs in it, an onion and some cloves. Never tried it. And you mix it together and the bread kind of absorbs the milk and kind of makes this sauce. Nobody else seems to like it. I love it with the turkey. I've never Delicious. Heard it. So I wouldn't say it's my favourite thing, but it's something that I only get on Christmas Day and it's happening this year because we're going to my parents' Do, do you eat yourself silly on Christmas Day? Yes. Yeah. So yes. this one day I go cray cray. Mm. Go cray cray. Yeah. For me it's Christmas pudding. Christmas pud? Oh, with so much cream and so much custard. Do you have brandy butter? No. So this is another. I'm going, you got, this you is, and your sauces. Yeah, this is. This John's is, getting saucy. This is probably quite English, I'd imagine. My dad makes brandy butter. What's which brandy? Is, so like butter that's made brandy? It's, no, it's butter mixed in with sugar and brandy and you put it on top of your Christmas pudding and it kind of melts on there. Oh, no, I haven't. No. I haven't. And, uh, and my dad, another thing he likes to do is he lights the Christmas pudding. Yeah, I haven't done that. Yeah, does he, he put the penny that? in there? 
Sorry? Does he put the coin in there? No, no. But to light that, you've got your brandy. I think, I'm sure it's brandy. And you light a match and you just hold it under and you get it hotter and hotter and hotter and then it ignites. How long does it burn for? Oh, not very long. Yeah. It doesn't work so well in New Zealand because if you're having your your Christmas afternoon tea or you know, afternoon tea early dinner it's kind of you've got to shut all the curtains to actually see anything happening a bit different in the UK do you know what I'm really looking forward to John Christmas day I'm so hungry right now because <laughs> <laughs> it's the one day of the year I'm a pretty I, I, like I have moments where I go crazy feeding but I'm pretty good with my eating um, but Christmas day I do go cray cray mm. well you guys know that you know let's get into it here's John Hancock right now go Righty ho, guys. So you will have heard one of our most famous listeners who's been around since day one. He can't walk down the street, John. No. He walks down the street and people go, oh my God, it's the Mountain Snail. The Mountain Snail, John Hancock, and he is not the title sponsor of the, uh, the Boston Mar- Marathon. Boston Marathon. Uh, instead, he is uh, world famous in Wellington and he has now become a swim run uh, aficionado, expert, traveling the world, doing it all. So welcome back to the show, John. Hey guys, nice to nice to chat. I get both of you this time. This is this is luxury. Uh, not really. many get this level, I tell you. But when, when we're dealing with John Hancock, we make sure both turn up. Well, he d- <laughs> and he delivers as well. He sends over a twenty-five page document uh, <laughs> preparing for today's show. He's done a fantastic resource that um, we will share on our show notes. Um, if you guys want to find out a bit more about Swim Run, uh, a lot of the stuff we're going to cover will be in there with pictures and all this beautiful stuff. Some of it is a bit New Zealand centered around Wellington but a lot of it uh, is fantastic stuff for you guys in different parts of the world. So John, um, what, you know, you've been an Ironman athlete, you've done short course, you've done long course. Um, what was it about uh, the swim run side of things that sort of drew you in and has captivated you? Yeah, that's a really good question. I wonder, because you've done a lot of stuff on the show over the last year about all these sort of wacky variants of um, sort of main, mainstream triathlon. It's obviously something of interest to you as well. Because, I mean, I think the short answer is I, I did one Ironman too many and got a bit burnt out by the whole experience. And I had a couple of years just being a bit cruisy and recreational and just doing local shorter events. But before... Um, before I did triathlon, like back in the UK 25 years ago, I did a lot of a sport called orienteering, which is, um, it's quite tragic actually. It's uh, sort of adults running around in forests wearing what look like nylon pajamas with um, a map and a compass. But there's a, I mean, there's a navigation problem solving side to it, but there's also a totally unstructured, um, you know, finding the optimal route you know, for some people, it's quicker to go around hills. For other people, it's quicker to go over hills. You could even swim across lakes rather than running around the side of them. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and I think the orienteering world and the adventure racing world are quite sort of closely linked to one another. Mm. And I've always quite enjoyed that sort of thing. Um, but the, uh, the biggest problem with them is in my extremely unimpressive triathlon career, I'm a much better swimmer than I am the other two. Um, and so when um, I was listening to I Am Talk episode 521 and uh, Jonas Colting, who was a um, sort of, a, well, he probably was a first tier elite um, yeah. Ironman pro for a while, 
um, you had him on the show and he was talking about this sport swim run uh, from Sweden, uh, which is really just a sort of a combination of endless flow running and swimming without stopping. Um, and I just thought it sounded absolutely fantastic, this sort of wonderful wildness, but it's still combining, you know, the elements of, uh, of the fun bits of triathlon. Um, yeah, so that was a very complicated answer. Well, it's, to it's, also, it's also an easy transition, isn't it? Even like you had the history, um, but a lot of triathletes who don't have the history, you know, it's in our skill set, isn't it? So it works really well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's also something slightly less OCD type A about the whole scene. I mean, it's a thing I quite like about the open water swimming scene. They're, they're a lot less um, intense than, um, <laughs> than mm. triathletes. Um, and so I think when you give away the sort of really pushing yourself for whatever high performance means for you, um, that's been, you know, real, real pleasure, actually, you know, sort of little everyday adventures all the time. Um, and we might talk a little bit about the, the, the training later on. I mean, one of the things I've had huge fun with in New Zealand is, um, you know, training with other people locally, discovering new places to go and swim and run, which I've never been to before, even though I live in the, <laughs> the city where all these these places exist. What, what about, you know, your, your competitive urge side of things? Because you sort of mentioned the, you know, a lot of tries are pretty intense and it's often numbers-based, you know, how fast can I go, how much power can I produce, heart rates, this, that and the other thing. I'd imagine that's not really so present in that scene. And is that, uh, is that an appeal for you or is that a, a turn-off for you? Oh, no. Um, uh, I think I, I, I have to be about the world's least competitive triathlete, actually. It is, in fact, a miracle that I even managed to finish half the races I did, given how uncompetitive I am. I mean, for, for, for me, the motivation was very much me against myself. You know, it was just to try and see how good I could get with the with the hand that life had dealt me. Um, so, uh, as you say, I mean, in swim run, and some of these things, <laughs> they're, they're, I mean, they're actually pretty challenging. So, the it, it's much more completion goals and, and you know, the satisfaction and being able to do something that looks fairly daunting um so for example the first brecker race we had in wanaka which i did a an interview with you guys on a couple of years ago um you know involves you know running the uh an off-road marathon but also swimming across lake wanaka halfway through it which is actually quite a long way it's very deep and it's very cold and i think for a lot of people you know just doing that was uh, was a pretty epic achievement um although there is a top end to swim run as a sport we don't see very much of it in this part of the world but in scandinavia um there are pro teams um the uh the top tier races are very very competitive so there are teams that are sponsored by the swedish army um head the uh we Probably most people know them as a tennis racket manufacturer or a ski manufacturer, but they're actually a major swim run wetsuit and equipment um, manufacturer. They sponsor a couple of teams. Um, most of the um, of the companies that make swim run specific gear sponsor pro teams in Scandinavia. And increasingly, there's a few teams out of the UK who are getting into that world. Um, and, uh, you know, so and a lot of these guys, they've come from sort of high performance triathlon or sort of uh, uh, other elite sport backgrounds. Um, so that, I think they're pretty scientific about it. Um, is, there, is there much money in the pros? Uh, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> 
So um, one, I, I popped you an email uh, last night or this morning, I can't remember, um, just about the terminology of the different brands. You know, I, I don't follow the sport very closely, and I know in New Zealand we have Brecker, there's a couple of races, you know, here, you know, Ertela, which is the, the, the sort of the original one in Sweden, and then we have other swim, race, swim run events around the world. So maybe just talk us through the, the branding and, and who owns what and how it all sort of works, you know, comparing to, say, Ironman and Challenge in the, in the triathlon and ITU in the triathlon world. Hmm. I mean, your question, you said, who's franchising it and expanding it all around the world? Um, and I think the answer to that is, well, no one consistently. Uh, so it, it's very, very like the very early days of triathlon, which was all fairly random. You know, you just had individual race organizers in different places, you know, whizzing up things that they thought would be fun to do very little standardization around anything very much um in in triathlon like you talked to john hellemans about what new zealand was like back when he started and about the only thing that triathlons had in common was there were three of something but you know what disciplines they were or what you know lengths they were or even what order they came in that was totally random and you know the impression i get is that there's race organizers all over the world are sort of experimenting with um with swim run but obviously, the the most well-known franchise um, is the Ertiller franchise. So this was um, organized by the two guys who came up with the, the concept as a couple of Swedes. Um, and it goes from the, the edge of Stockholm, effect, effectively, through to the Uto Peninsula. Which, and so Stockholm's in a big archipelago, which is a complicated word for just a chain of islands. Mm-hmm. And so Ertiller, it's the Swedish for island to island. So Ur is the Swedish word for island. Um, and it, that's literally what they thought of. You know, you just swim to an island, run over the island, swim to the next island. And nowadays, they've got about seven races which carry the Ertiller brand. Um, which they sort of pitch as a um, uh, a sort of race series, if you like. But they do also have partner, what they call merit races, which are races, swim run races organized by other people, um, but which uh, give you eligibility to qualify for the Ertila, what they pitch as the um, swim run world championships, which is this phenomenal 65k schlep from Stockholm through to the Erta Peninsula um, and um, as far as I'm aware it's I mean it's just their business it's just a couple of guys in in Sweden um, but in in our world which is the very racist um, English language centric world we, we we know an awful lot about Brecker um, and I think the main reason for that is that the guy who organizes it is English um, and um, uh, so this guy, Ben DeRivas, um, who's a sort of um, a high energy, former British Army, former investment banker, swim run enthusiast, he has a network of about, um, I think it would be more than seven now, eight races, um, which are in the UK. And he now has two races in New Zealand. Um, and uh, actually this year he's introduced a, a Brecker Swim Run Championship Series so he's going to have a Northern Hemisphere Series and a Southern Hemisphere Series um, uh, there um, but I think that his classic race Brecker Buttermere which is in the Northern Lake District in the UK is is also an Ertiller partner race um, so you can 
you know compete in that and try and qualify for the uh, for the Attila World Championships. Not totally up to date, but 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 there are other ones. I mean, there's another um, chap from uh, Norway who has a very long-standing swim-run race called Rockman, um, and he's actually bringing his race series to New Zealand next year. So that's our new race for next year, which will be in Mount Monganui. Um, and I think, and he has another race in Spain, and I think he has another one in France somewhere. Um, so, uh, but we tend to be quite English language, uh, English language centric on this. Mm-hmm. Just before you dialed, actually, I was just looking up. There's a it's something <laughs> called USA Swim Run, um, yeah. and they actually sponsor Bob Babbitt's podcast. So, mm-hmm. you know, every time you get Bob Babbitt going, you know. <laughs> sponsored by usa swim run grab a partner and try try a swim run um as far as talking about bob over there actually and you're saying it's really growing yeah yeah. well just doing a bit of hunting around on the internet it looks like that's just a couple of 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 race organizers not not just swim run race organizers triathlon race organizers who who've have decided to get together and sort of create a brand there so they've got a sort of quasi race series in north america but i don't know that there's you know much other than glory in, in, is, there, in the... is there you know like your kona you know is there a iconic one that everyone wants to tick off or is it not really established itself yet Oh well, this is this is the Ertilla World Championships, which yep. is the original route from so Stockholm. That's, that's the one. Uto Peninsula, which is huge. Um, yeah. Now, uh, you've been doing this for um, you know a couple of years now. Um, maybe I was really keen to try to make this a bit of a one hundred and one um, for people that might be keen to get involved. So maybe just go through some of the key things that you've learnt, some of the hard lessons you've uh, learnt, some of the things have gone really well, and, and 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 start maybe introducing some of the equipment people need to be thinking about. Yep, yeah. So I, I was thinking when I was sort of preparing for this, you know, when I was doing triathlon, my coach was very keen on this sort of. Uh, singular goal focus you know if the objective is to try and you know do the fastest possible time around whatever course it is that you've decided to do then you need to prepare specifically for that task so you need to get used to the terrain and the conditions and you need to get all the equipment ready and it's even more true in swim run because because there's so much more equipment that you need to get used to um but my my standing joke is the single most important piece of equipment that you need to do a swim run um, with is a partner mm-hmm. so that that's the that's the biggest difference from most other forms of um, endurance sport which are sort of solo based and uh, I think it's really just because swim run tends to happen in quite remote places so it's primarily a safety thing that you really do need to be with somebody else and you know although there are marshals and safety boats and things like that you are pretty much on your own um, and certainly some of these northern European races, you are in the middle of absolutely nowhere. <laughs> so this relationship with the partner is is key because the races are very long in their classic format. So, you know, sort of 40 to 60K of running and anything up to sort of between 6 and 12K of swimming, you know. So you can be out for sort of 8 to eight to 12 hours. And that's an awfully long time to spend with one person, particularly if you're putting yourselves through some pretty testing conditions um so finding somebody who's um you know sort of uh, psychologically compatible with you um is 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 pretty important Um, what about physically as well because i imagine you need to be of a similar ability don't you well that's it's a a good question bevan i I, one of the things that uh, it 
I, well, it's, it's weird, actually. I found actually we do more of in New Zealand than they seem to in the UK is tethering. Um, so this is a technique that adventure racers have used for a long time where weaker runners will tether themselves to stronger runners and, and they'll literally get towed along with a bungee cord. Yeah. And in swim run, um, the primary use of tethering is in the swim uh, because often there's an enormous difference between the swim speeds of people. Um, but my experience is it's actually really good in the run as well because you can you can get towed along if you're so, not. So, so it kind of seems that in bricker or, or in swim run that it's kind of the rules are there ain't no rules. Yes, that's right. You're not allowed motors, I think. Um, And I think there's a limit to the size of swim fins that you're allowed to wear if you want to use swim fins. Um, But um, other than that, I think, you know, one of the things you're really battling with is because you swim in your wet, sorry, you swim in your wetsuit, you swim in your shoes and you run in a wetsuit. Mm. The, the, the problem about the swim is that your shoes create so much drag, you're really trying to come up with every conceivable way of minimizing that drag. So um, having floats to try and keep your feet out of the water um, and then to use hand paddles to create extra propulsion is um, you know, sort of fairly obvious things that you can do. But it, it's a bit like um, team tri- time trialing on the bike. You know, it's not really about what time the first rider goes over the line. The thing that really matters is what time the last rider goes mm. over the line. So tethering, it sort of averages the performance of the two of you. But overall, it does mean that the two of you will get over the line faster. Um, one of the other things I've found about tethering is that, um, you know, your listeners know all about what the swim starts like at a triathlon, where it's just complete bedlam. Well, the, the start of a swim run race is equally complete bedlam, because normally there's a swim very near the beginning, and it's extremely easy to lose your partner. Um, so you've got hundreds of people all sort of thrashing around in the water, but you're meant to stay together. And one of the real advantages at the beginning of the race to be tethered to the um, to the partner, of course, is that you don't lose them. So you're still tied on to them uh yeah so it's an unexpected bonus <laughs> with, with that tethering i can understand how it works when you're running but how do you actually tether from person to person when you're swimming ah right so you you you, you have a, um, a um a non-stretchy belt around your waist actually when we when we started playing around with this in new zealand um obviously there's a whole industry of people making stuff for swim run in scandinavia but in new zealand we had absolutely nothing so it's all sort of macgyver make everything up yourself so my my first um my first go at this i i used an old um tri- triathlon number belt um yeah. and uh, and it was really good for me on the front but um, my mate who was behind me as soon as I started swimming because the number belts are stretchy it sort of shot straight up to his armpits and it was like he was being crucified and he couldn't <laughs> swim. so we discovered you have to use rigid nylon belts um, probably with a carabiner on them and then you clip the bungee cord on with um, uh, uh, with the carabiners and that means it's quite easy to detach yourself from your partner if you don't like them anymore or I, I, I imagine a bricker or a place swim run um Vaseline's got to be your best friend because I imagine the rubbing you're getting is happening everywhere in your body. Quite, quite, quite a lot of ass going on. <laughs> yeah, really. exactly. yeah, so, I mean, it's quite an adult sport. All it, all <laughs> Obviously. It. So no, back to that. So the person who's tailing behind, they've got a, a, a got a belt on and their carabiner, a carabiner and a cord to, to you. Is yep. that is that cord um, going underneath their stomach and underneath their face when they're swimming, or is it sort of going over the top of their head up their back? 
Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So the um, the the carabiner on the on the person behind will be in front of their tummy button, mm-hmm. and so the cord sort of goes under their nose. <laughs> right. And the and the idea is that your your hands are on each side of the cord, which is sort yeah. of hanging in the water in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, I've actually got quite a funny story about the tether as well, because you know I I found out all about tethering, and uh, you know. I was sort of bodging together all my equipment, and I thought, well, that's great. So what the hell do I make the tether out of? And I went on the internet, and the only place I could find anything about it was in adventure running blogs. Um, and uh, I found one blog, and it said, what you need is six-millimeter diameter rubber tubing. And I thought, well, that's great. So where the hell do I get six-millimeter diameter rubber tubing from? And it turns out the answer is a school scientific equipment supplier, because that's the stuff that Bunsen burners are attached to oh, the, okay. you know, the chemistry bench with so i then thought well that's awesome so where the hell do i find a school scientific equipment supplier and i found some guy in auckland um and i rang him up and i go right it's going to sound a bit odd but i need some of this uh tubing and he goes oh sweet as bro uh how many hundred meters do you want and i went (laughs) um actually three meters would be absolutely fine um so this stuff arrived and then one of my mates locally he said "Mm, now john you're not that worldly there there are other uses for this sort of rubber tubing and you may wind up on a police watch list because it's uh, what intravenous drug users use and they wrap it around their forearms in order to uh, shoot up with heroin so uh, so if swim run doesn't go well for you you can always diversify with the equipment and put it to new use uh, recover some of your investment (laughs) um so other other equipment tips you've got i mean i noticed that in your in your the the piece you sent over like putting um actually putting flotation devices up your shins and you're underneath your wetsuit does that work fairly effectively does it yeah yeah so um uh, i mean the classic thing to do is you use a pool boy um and and you sort of strap your pool boy to your leg and there's 101 different ways of attaching the pool boy to your leg so that it's on out of the way when you're running but uh, i have noticed a few people they sort of take you know pool noodles those sort of long tubey things that they have in the pool and people had sort of chopped them down to size and then chopped them in half so they sort of look like shin guards you know like somebody's going to yeah. shoot off and play soccer <laughs> but um you you can buy in fact Jonas Colting who's got a, a swim run company now his wetsuit um comes with special floaty shin guards which yeah. are professionally made um and a lot of people quite like them because they're sort of less faff than using the um uh, uh, the pool boy on the side um yeah uh i mean i suppose the other thing it might be worth mentioning is the wetsuit of course because yeah. um uh when when i started i just took an old um wetsuit and chopped it down so so you have to chop the wetsuit above your knee so that you can actually run in it um uh and um you know that works pretty well um it's quite squeaky running in a in a triathlon wetsuit because obviously between your thighs you've got quite a lot of rubber going on so Bev, this is back to your vaseline i'm thinking you need a bloody kg tub of it for a race (laughs) (laughs) but but of course now there are um there's a whole bunch of um professionally made wetsuits for triathlon um so i mean the main thing about them is they've got a sort of um nylon gusset so that when you're running it's more like running in tri shorts um and um and they've got pockets all over the place and the you know the cut and everything is more comfortable for for swim run um but the the thing that's a bit 
different about a triathlon wetsuit from a swim run wetsuit is most triathlon wetsuits obviously the zips at the back so that you can take it off quickly um in swim run the zips at the front um because you're sort of zipping it and unzipping it to cool down while you're running along um which does mean they're almost impossible to take off on your own unless you've got hypermobile shoulders which is always quite entertaining um yeah, uh, but there's 101 brands these days. Uh, most of the main triathlon wetsuit companies actually make swim run wetsuits now. They're just quite hard to get hold of anywhere other than Europe, really. Um, but these days, you know, you can buy everything on the internet. So it's, uh, it's all quite easy. I, I bought my original wetsuit from some guy in Stockholm, um, and we did the whole exchange in Swedish. It was great. Uh, <laughs> nice. Good old Google Translate. We were we were sweet. <laughs> Um, now, you also mentioned teaching your Garmin how to do swim, run, swim, run, swim, run, swim, run, swim, run. Is that a pretty straightforward process or maybe explain how that works? Yeah, well, I didn't I didn't know about this. I think more more recent Garmin's and Sunto um, uh, watches and everything may actually come with a sort of pre-factory set swim run setting. But I had a old Garmin 920, and obviously this doesn't have a clue what swim run is. And uh, so there's a guy I was chatting to, and he said, well, you know, there is a, a way you can set your own program up so you can just design something. But the problem with the Garmin 920 is it only does five steps, which mm-hmm. is the five steps of a triathlon, including the two transitions. So he said, so the key thing is that you have to start with – um, start with a run and then you program it so it goes run swim run swim and then you stop because you can only reset your watch to do another program when you're running it's very very difficult to get your Garmin going again while you're swimming and that's, uh, it's obvious really when you think about it but uh, um, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that modern things like that they they come pre-built and you can have 101 segments to your race mm-hmm. um, uh, one, a couple of other things people will should be aware of one that you pointed out. One of them is fueling during the race. Uh, most races are, um, you know, there's not so much aid stations. Or no, maybe explain how aid stations and fueling and how how self sufficient you need to be. Yeah, so the, I mean, there are there are aid stations on swim run races, and they're reasonably frequent. So you shouldn't need to take too much food with you. Um, and obviously, one of the lovely things about swimming in lakes is you can drink the lake, which is really nice. Mm. So you don't really have to worry too much about drinking. Although that caught me out recently when I did a swim run in the sea, and I suddenly thought, oh, I hadn't really, <laughs> hadn't really thought my way through this one. Um, but for for training and for doing adventures and things like that, obviously you do need to think about stuff like this. So um, a lot of swim run races these days are zero environmental impact races. So the idea is that they have absolutely no rubbish whatsoever. And a condition for that is you have to take your own flexible cup, which you just shove in a pocket in your wetsuit. And so when you get to the aid stations, you'll fill the cup up with water or electrolyte or whatever they've got there. Um, and I mean, what I normally do is I normally take a few gels with me just in case, but I generally don't use them because there's, you know, food or gels or whatever. Um, at the aid stations but certainly if you're doing a long training day you, it's it, I mean it's it, it's it's a bit of a logistical headache because where, where on earth do you put all this stuff mm. so you can have pockets inside your wetsuit and some people actually stitch pockets into their wetsuits you know so they can carry things um and it's really one of the big differences between the different wetsuit designs um that uh you know the first wetsuit I had was an orca 
wetsuit which had a pocket on the leg but it's actually really small um blue 70 um do a wetsuit uh, for swim run which has a, a pocket that's in the small of your back um which is quite good because it's quite big and you can shove quite a lot into it but you can still get into it while you're moving um a lot of the manufacturers have wetsuits um which have pockets on the inside which is fine but when you're swimming it means you can't get to the mm. stuff that pockets so you know again um i think if i have one piece of advice for people about this sport it's practice 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 you know there's so much stuff that goes wrong um where if you try it out in training you're fine that's a sound like a triathlon coach don't i but you know you've got to have simulated race conditions because there are so many things that you won't have anticipated that can go wrong and catch you out just just on there what, what are the kind of price are you paying to do a race uh, um so in New Zealand, I mean, it's sort of Ironman prices for the pair of you. So okay. it's a bit like you're paying half the price of an Ironman, okay. maybe a bit less. I think um, I think the Breca races are sort of six, seven, eight hundred dollars, something like that. And yeah. so what's that? Three, four hundred bucks each. Mm-hmm. Um, the main killer for them is uh, it's water safety. It's really expensive to organize when the same way that for triathlons is water safety and, you know, road safety on the bike is the expensive bit. It's just people, really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, one point you made in your document is really important with transitions. Um, so maybe talk through some of your transition tips and, uh, and you know, especially if people are wanting to get from A to B as quick as possible. Yeah, well, I'm inspired by the great Bevan James Isles in this one. Oh, and so you should be. <laughs> transition speed is the, uh, you know, it's, it's really the key to free speed in a triathlon. And, uh, you know, you're often joking about just how much time people seem to be able to spend in a triathlon transition. And that, and that matters for sure. But in a swim run, of course, there are so many more legs. Mm. So your average swim run race, you could have 20 transitions um, quite easily, maybe even more than that. And my, my experience is, and, and you were saying, John, earlier on that, you know, there's a slightly more mellow approach to the whole thing. So people are pretty relaxed as they approach the transition. And as they come into the transition and people are mucking around, getting their goggles ready, you know, getting their tethers organized and everything. And you're quite easily burning up 30 seconds to a minute at every single transition point. So if you add that up over a day, that's, you know, 20 minutes to half an hour of completely dead time mm-hmm. on transitions. And it's and it's hard to make up 30 seconds running, let alone 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. So, um what, I, what I've often done with my partners is to be absolutely psychotic about making sure that we're ready to go in the water before we get there. Um, and again, it's a bit of a palaver. You know, you're running along and you're hot and sweaty and everything, but you need to get your goggles on. You need to make your hats on. You need to make sure your tether's in the right place. Um, and if you've taken your paddles off um, and hung them around your waist or something, you need to get them back on and all of that while you're running, um, which means that when you get to the point, um, because the, the, the transitions are unstructured, you just don't stop moving you you just run straight down the beach dive into the lake and off you go um and uh um really this is one of the uh, the only things i've ever done in the sport which has worked well really is to is to take time out of people simply by executing transitions in and out of the water properly it's it's probably more important going into the water because that's where you've got to get all your your clobber ready we're starting to see it, obviously, just you know, a little bit more in terms of the, um, the, you know, the Super League stuff where we see the athletes putting their swim caps on and goggles on and what have yep. you. So um, watch that for some good tips as well. Now, in terms of the training you, you do, um, 
you know, how do you, how, how have you sort of structured your training? You know, obviously, well, no, I assume you're not going out in your wetsuit, you know, three times a week and swimming and running. How, how have you sort of modified your training? Is it sort of weekend, do a key weekend session with, um, with your wetsuit on, with your partner, or how, how do you make it work? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that's exactly what we do. So I still just swim and run pretty much the same way um, that I, I always used to during the week. But um, uh, the real benefit of this uh, sport is that I don't have to ride my bike anymore, which is really embarrassing whenever I try and do anything involving a bike these days, but whatever. Um, and um, yeah, like you say, it's it, it's really about trying to simulate race conditions as closely as possible. Um, so uh, longer stuff at the weekend. What I what I try and do with people is um, get them used to all the different bits of equipment. Um, uh, and so for a lot of people, learning to swim with the tether takes a lot of practice because it it feels quite unnatural. Um, uh, running in a wetsuit feels quite strange. Um, running in a wetsuit with your goggles and your cap in uh, expensive suburbs of the town that you live in takes quite a bit of getting used to as well. But um, after a while, you lose the self-consciousness. So that's uh, that's okay. Um, and you know, if you, if you live here, I mean, there's just so many places that you can go exploring, and it's it's really fun. I mean, there's a you know, a, a Christchurch is the, is the same. Auckland has an amazing coastline, and there's all these little nooks and crannies which are pretty difficult to get to if you don't have the ability to run and swim away from um, tracks. Um, and that's that's quite exhilarating, and it's very similar to the conditions that we go to in the races as well. I mean, that's not all on tracks. Some of them you have to sort of hack your way through. Um, rough terrain in order to get back onto a track or something like that um, but there, there was a guy I met from the UK who lives in London who's been very successful in swim run he's won the Brecker Buttermere race a few times with his partner and you know placed really highly in the Ertler World Championships but because he lives in London he's absolutely stuffed for places to train and he was saying they have a favorite venue which is an old quarry site just uh, near the m25 which has a, a, for, a quarry which is filled up with water so people do water sports in it so they do their swims in the quarry and then they've got a little running loop with a hill and they just do loads and loads and loads of loop intervals on this to make up the structure of whatever race it is they're going to do it sounds amazingly tedious but he was pretty pretty keen on it but but certainly in new zealand it's just been wonderful because there's so many places to go exploring so l last year i actually organized a weekend for um the locals in in the Abel Tasman National oh, I was, Park. I was about to say that's that would be um, a primo place to do. It. Where, I where did totally you go? So, well, I was inspired by the great John Newsom because when we when we first talked about swim run with Jonas Colting, I think you talked about it because it's yeah. near Kaiteri Terry where you guys go on holiday every year. So. The um, I mean, just to put it in context, it sounds like this swim run should be sponsored by New Zealand Tourism. This uh, okay. this interview, but so the Abel Tasman National Park is a is a very famous it's New Zealand paradise. great walk, and it's um it's one of the places where you can sort of see that New Zealand really is a Pacific island. So you know, it's lovely palm fringed beaches and uh, topaz coloured seas and very very sandy, and it's very tidal. 
so the challenge as a swim run of course is you want to swim across all of the bays and if you're walking the able tasman which is what most people do you have to time your walk to do it at low tide because obviously you can't get through all of the estuaries and everything at high tide or you have to go right around the edge um so my strategy for doing it as a swim run was to do the whole thing at high tide so that we could swim across every single one of the bays and uh, it took a bit of planning and organizing um but the local boat um, operators couldn't have been more helpful, actually. They they helped me design a course where we weren't going to get run over by speedboats or, you know, people doing commercial things. Um, yeah, so we just landed at Totranui Beach and we made our way down. Um, uh, we even swam out to the island towards Marahau, whatever that's called, mm-hmm. uh, just off yeah. the coast. Yeah, it was wonderful. Uh, great. And, and it just made me think, crumbs, we could do this, you know, anywhere, really. There's crumbs. so many. Yeah. So, I've got a question show, for but... you about training. Um, getting used to the equipment, you know, like because if you're swimming, because it's a lot of swimming, and for most people to wear pa- pedals or fins, you know, they're going to get yep. tendonitis, they're going to a lot of joint problems or, you know, tendon problems. So, how do you ad- adapt your body to that in the training outside of racing? Yeah, really great, really great question. So, like I said, the, you know, the classic thing to do to give you extra power to combat the drag that your shoes create is to swim with normal hand paddles, you know, the sort of things that you use in the swimming pool. But the problem with that is that swimming with hand paddles and extra drag for 8K is a recipe for blowing your shoulders oh, out. So, so, so you have to train it. And what a lot of people do is they use finger paddles. I don't know if you've seen these. So um, it, uh, they're, they're, you know, made by sort of speedo and people like that but they they're very very small and they just go over your fingertips but they do create extra um well i mean what they're really doing is they're compensating for inadequacies in your catch and giving you a much better surface to present to the water but there's far less drag (laughs) with them than there is with the whole paddle so building your your strength endurance in your shoulders up using those little um mini finger paddles is a great way into it and equally the the thing with swim fins um i I think in the slides that i've done for you i put this picture of these amazing clip-on swim fins that some scandinavian dude has invented so you (laughs) you literally put them over the top of your shoes and they're huge so god knows what you do with them when you're running i mean (laughs) you'd need a rucksack or something like that and i i actually messed around with trying um taking some short um pool fins and shoving them down my wetsuit um and uh, and actually taking my shoes off and putting my shoes in my wetsuit and putting the fins on and it's awesome <laughs> but it tires your legs out and i think one of the things about swim run which is quite nice particularly if you're not you know sort of uh, super super leg athletic is that when when you're swimming you actually give your legs a bit of a break um and that means that going back to the run it's like a sort of um extreme version of your one run walk strategy john you know you sort of uh, almost like an hourglass aren't you top bottom top bottom that's exactly right but the problem with using fins of course is that you don't give your legs a break Mm. um and again you know that's a great way of blowing your legs out because kicking six beat kick with fins is exhausting i mean if you try and do that what are the top top guys in the sport use oh they they just swim in their shoes um and i've messed around with taking your shoes off and swimming without shoes for long swims and everything but i'm increasingly coming to the view that it's just a waste of time and you might as well you might as well just 
work out how to swim in your shoes with as little drag as possible so to keeping your feet as high as possible um the, i mean the other thing to think about is the shoe that the shoe itself makes quite a big difference you know some shoes retain water some shoes are incredibly well drained and there are actually swim run specific shoes now so salomon have a, a shoe which was designed by some bloke who won the Ertila. um there are a couple of Scandinavian companies, Salming and um, Icebug, who um, make Swim One specific shoes. And the main thing about them is they drain very, very well. So, um, and they have very um, little drag. But my local partner in Wellington, he um, he has these enormous Hocker One One, you know. Um, yeah. Shoes with this sort of 10 inch thick sole, and he said they were awesome because they float, <laughs> they float. Yeah. that's right, that sort of lift your feet up. Um, and with normal running shoes, often people drill holes in the bottom of the soles just to help with the drainage thing. I, I so, just love it. I like your, your, your call earlier the MacGyver factor of the sport is so it, cool, it's, it's, it's the best. Have you got your Swiss Army knife, you know? Yeah, that's right. So you could do sort of running repairs, you yeah. know, to hatch your gear on the ray. There, there was a famous um Christchurch link around around fins actually that um uh when we had the the first um uh brecker wanaka it was run won by your mate mike phillips yeah. um uh from christchurch and he did it with um uh one of his running friends from school who's nowhere near as good a swimmer um as him and his his mate did actually use fins for the whole of, oh, of the right. event so he shoved the fins down his wetsuit and every single transition he took his shoes off put his fins on just so he could keep up with mike mm-hmm. but there's there's one leg on the um uh the brecker wanaka course where you swim to one end of ruby island just um uh just near town and then you run to the other end of the island and then you swim back to um to shore so it's only i don't know 200 meters or something like that so this guy did the run in his fins (laughs) it's like running along like a duck um but very very effective and obviously he's got the the strength endurance in his legs to be able to tolerate that that amount of kicking um and running uh but um it's definitely something to practice because i found it it really didn't work um after about an hour my legs were so tired i could hardly run at all but i was flying swimming so (laughs) just a just a random question we're seeing a lot in ironman recently with the swims being cancelled um is it something that you see in bricket like, is, is it kind of the water conditions a problem for the sport? Yeah, I think it it wouldn't really work if the swim was cancelled, would it? In no, no, but, but, you know, are we seeing the races being problem. postponed or cancelled because of bad swim conditions? Not not that I'm aware of. Okay. Um, I've seen some footage of the, the Swedish one. I don't know what year it was. It was full on. Oh, really? They did not cancel the swim, but they were massive. Any triathlon would have been cancelled. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is extreme weather. So I think it was not not the 2018 Ertilla, it was the 2017 Ertilla, and they had yeah. a big storm came through. Um, and then there's one leg on the Ertilla called the Pig Swim, um, which I think is a literal translation of what the Swedish call it, probably polite version. Um, but, the, but um, you know, the, the channel's actually quite exposed to the weather. So obviously the weather had arrived from whichever direction it was. And you see these guys <laughs> scrambling ashore. <laughs> And the camera's completely covered in spray because there's so much of this stuff. And it's very rocky as well, that coastline. So actually getting out when it's really rough is quite hard. So most of the, um, uh, well, the the original Breckaway race at Wanaka in New Zealand was pretty tame, really. I mean, it's, you know, it's swimming in a lake. It's not that choppy, quite, quite nice 
gentle shorelines but um ben's second race in new zealand which is in the bay of islands up in the far north of the north island which is a true archipelago um is it has a much rockier coastline and it's um it's sea swimming so um uh, in a really rough conditions that would actually be quite you know something you'd need to practice is getting out of the water safely particularly when you're attached to somebody else when there's a huge swell and you're coming ashore on rocks that are covered in rock oysters which are incredibly sharp so um yeah i mean and again it's something that you just need to practice you know people who do surf life saving are pretty good at that sort of thing but you need to know how to read the ocean behind you and and time you know standing up so you don't get knocked off your feet the minute that you get upright um so guys john's done a really great resource so we're going to have a have a link to and that will talk through a lot of the uh, equipment we've been going through um, and, uh, and a bit of the New Zealand stuff, a bit of the history about the Swedish um, side of things. And then you've got for, for the Kiwis and, and, and as well as people overseas, you've also got uh, NZ Swim Run, a Facebook page, um, which I know you're very active on because I think I'm part of it and I see things coming through all the time. Uh, anything else you want to get out there, John, anything you're doing or, or any other tips you've got? Oh, no, I mean, I just encourage people to, to, to give it a go. I mean, John, you're always really big on getting people to try something a bit different during their off season. Um, and, you know, you're very OCD type A about the whole thing. So yeah. your, your solution to doing something different is to get them to do a running block or a cycling block yeah. or something like that. Um, but some of the coaches in New Zealand um, have been very supportive of their guys doing some swim run stuff after, particularly after Ironman, because mm. um, uh, the Bay of Islands race is in April, um, late April. It's quite a late season race for us here um and because it's a bit less intense but it's very very good for people's skills and it does require you to build up your swimming um and i think for a lot of the um the ironman athletes often it's the swim that's the limiter so it's you know it's a much more fun way of of doing a swim block uh, mm-hmm. but with you know sort of twist i suppose yeah, it does uh, go back to that you know as you were saying earlier you know triathlon is is the McDonald's, you know, at least Ironman is, um, whereas it's going back to kind of the roots of Ironman, really, isn't it? Is it kind of just that adventure, kind of seeking a challenge kind of thing, isn't it? Ab- 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 absolutely, Bev. And it is, I mean, in many ways, it does feel more like adventure racing than it mm. does triathlon in many ways. I think, you know, it's sort of, um, I remember we talked to Richard Usher. Do you remember years yeah. and years and years and years ago? So Richard Usher, a famous multi-sport athlete from Christchurch. Christchurch? No, Nelson. 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 Oh, it's all the Wanaka, same. South Wanaka, Island. Wanaka. Yeah. Oh, is he? Right. I mean, all the same. <laughs> but, uh, so it's all beautiful. Is that what you mean? <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean, Bev. So, so this guy was extreme. You know, he won the coast to coast a million times, and he was absolutely incredible. And then he turned his hand to Ironman. And for a very long time, he was the fastest New Zealander ever round the Ironman um, distance. Yeah. And then he gave it away and went back to um, multi-sport adventure racing. And I remember you, um, I think it was you doing an interview with him or some some uh, somewhere i heard an interview with him and he was saying that multi-sporters are very loose in the discipline you know they're not very scientific they don't think about power they don't think about technique very much they don't think about any of the things that triathlon um coaches obsess about um but they have much more flow. And what he tried to do through his time doing Ironman was to sort of learn about the science of high-performance pers- high um, endurance sport and bring some of that into multi-sport, but not lose his sort of groove, if you like. Mm. Um, and, you know, that sort of allowed him to take his performance to, to a new level. And I, and I think maybe that that's a bit where swim run is. You know, I mean, there's a, an awful lot of the people who do it are bored triathletes. Um, so that's great. And then the other segment of the population is, 
um, open water swimmers who don't mind running. Um, but certainly the triathletes all bring the type A personality, um, even if it's a little bit on holiday when they're doing it. Fantastic. Oh, good luck for your, your season of racing. Are you doing Wanaka and, uh, and um, Bay of Islands, or have you got other plans? Yep, yep. So I'll do both of the Brecker races in New Zealand. And then, as I was saying, we've got a new race in um, Mount Monganui this year, Rockman New Zealand, uh, which is organised by a wonderful Norwegian race organiser called Thor. Nice. Um, it sounds like a Norse god. Yeah. Um, and uh, so the original Rockman race is in the fjord um, uh, next to Stavanger in Norway and uh, has this famous um, checkpoint at Pulpit Rock. So Pulpit Rock is a is a ledge that's about a 1,000 metres above the fjord, uh, which people do base jumping from, Gosh. and uh, involves just a very, very long stair climb to get to it. And uh, um, so uh, well, the, one of the guys in Tauranga who's helping organise the New Zealand race has got a free entry, and he put something on Facebook and said, you know, anyone want to do this with me next year? And uh, so uh, when all the uh, pictures came out, after the race this year i thought oh actually that would be pretty good fun and i'm going to be in that part of the world anyway so a bit of domestic negotiation and i'm there nice just just like when i did camp kia kaha actually that, uh, the original camp kia kaha because we were on holiday in france weren't we and i drove you, you seem to be very good at the domestic um negotiation, negotiation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well my wife's doing a one-week mountain bike race immediately beforehand so i think i've got the moral high ground for this one <laughs> awesome oh we always love you having, having you on the show mountain snail and uh we look forward to seeing you around the trap sometime soon oh no it's an honor guys and thanks again for everything you do it's all pretty wonderful sponsor extreme Electric buffer, john and i tell you what you probably need to do some training after today, yes, to burn off all this food we've been eating, and so if you want to do hard training consistently days after days, what do you need, John? Extreme endurance, and, and good point you mentioned there because I have actually strategically placed a half Ironman simulation for myself and for lots of other local athletes on the twenty seventh, knowing that twenty fifth you're probably not training. Yeah, twenty sixth you might do something short, but then you'll be nice and fresh to smash it out on the twenty seventh. Um, one product that we use regularly over here is Extreme Endurance, uh, their standard. You know, traditional product, $46.95 before you get your IM Talk discount. Uh, so go check that out. And when you're doing sessions like a half Ironman simulation like we're doing over here on the 27th, this is a perfect way to bounce back. It's a tough session. You know, you're out there for half Ironman, however long that's going to take you, five hours, six hours, seven hours, uh, and then you can bounce back nice and quickly. So check that out. Also be taking in a bit of their protein, uh, like their vanilla, also like the chocolate, but uh, another way to enhance your recovery. So check it out, guys. Uh, xendurance.com, promo code IMTALK20. Time to rock and roll. Xendurance.com. So we're going to put the interview up with Simon Lessing, which came out years ago. It was year number two of the show, John. So yes. That, yes, that's 11 years ago. So here's Simon Lessing from 11 years ago. On today's show, we are very, very happy to have Simon Lessing. Um, I did my work, us. didn't I? Bevan did his P's, got it all prepared nicely this week. Um, if you don't know who Simon Lessing is, then... Uh, Stop listening to the show. <laughs> multiple uh, world champion. Probably the one of the most dominant athletes has ever been over the Olympic distance, stepping up to halves, done incredibly well, and um, we obviously want to quiz him on a few Ironman things today. So, welcome to the show, Simon. You had a good day so far? Yeah, not too bad. Pretty pretty hard. Typical, typical, typical day here in Colorado. So, uh, in fact, we've had uh, half of Australia and New Zealand over here this summer. So, uh, <laughs> so 
So it's kind of a, it's been interesting, really, kind of a Commonwealth insurgent here. Do you, do you ever get out the training with uh, Bevan Doherty and Co? You know, not really, because they're kind of doing different. Uh, you know, obviously they're focusing on the short distance racing, so you know the training is so different. And uh, you know, I, I'm here full year round, and uh, I end up training with guys that I sort of have a, you know, have I see pretty much all year round, and we kind of have our little group here. But uh, you know, I've been out a couple of times with Craig Alexander and a few uh, a few of the other guys, so uh, it's been fun anyway, especially the pool space. Cool. So, so we've seen your name sort of popping up here and there so far this year at, at a lot of the 70.3s. I mean, how's the year been going for you so far? Pretty crummy year so far. I, um, <laughs> well, the reality is that I've actually had an Achilles injury that's been nagging me the whole season. So uh, it kind of started in February, and I was training on it and, and really keeping on top of it, but it was still just, just a little bit irritated. And then I raced the uh, 70.3, the Disney 70.3. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I definitely heard it there, and then after that I had to take quite a bit of time off and uh, managed to sort of come back for uh, the Timberman 70.3, which was about a month ago, and uh, on very sort of average running for myself, I surprised myself with a relatively open, and uh, then of course I raced in uh, Cancun uh, two weekends ago, so that didn't go too well, I kind of struggled a little bit on the run yeah. <laughs> actually my run was my poorest discipline of the day so yeah. kind of ironic really yeah well one of the questions I sort of have for you is uh, we're going to go into this season a bit later on but I was really I'm really interested in your past and um because I, I probably started triathlon at a fairly similar time to you and um back in the days of Hamish Carter and all those guys and and Right about the time when you started winning your first world titles, you know, around about 92, uh, things were starting to change in triathlon, and, and right in the middle of your um, sort of Olympic distance career in 95, obviously the drafting came in. I mean, when that happened, yeah. how, how did you sort of feel about that? Were you happy about it, or were you, were you, did you prefer the non-drafting format? You know, to be honest, back then, um, it really didn't change too much, because the top guys were still dominating, and it actually made... You know, quite honestly, it made Olympic distance racing pretty easy, or it seemed a lot easier for a lot of us guys who came from sort of the non-drafting and all the all the issues over. You know, every single race you went to, it was well, this guy was drafting, that was guy was drafting. I remember doing the European Championships in uh, I think it was 1992, where they disqualified 40 guys for drafting. You know, and this was an, obviously a non-drafting race. So, <laughs> You know, it always was an issue. Um, and, of course, you had the physical effort of obviously having to take yourself through the whole race, hypothetically, without, you know, any, you know, aid to drafting, et cetera, et cetera. So when we did move up to to the drafting format, and, in fact, the very first race I did was the Goodwill Games um, yeah. in St. Petersburg, Russia, which that was the first time that the ITU sort of adopt, adopted the the whole drafting, you know, cause and uh, you know, like I said it really didn't seem to bother us too much because it was always still the same guys Brad, myself, Hamish you know we would still come out in front mm. and we would form a little group and then it basically became a sort of micro race amongst ourselves and of course back then you know I would say that the top guys were still pretty consistent in all three disciplines and over the years of course you know now you're looking 10, 11, 12 years down the line and it's changed completely. You know, mm. the, the, the the emphasis of, of each of those three disciplines has changed 
you know, dramatically. And, it, you know, for me, quite honestly, right now, you know, initially we could get away with it and it seemed, you know, it seemed a lot of fun. I mean, of course, it was really hard racing. Um, I remember the world champs in Cancun in 1995. I mean, it was still, you know, an absolutely killer of a run. Um, but, you know, you know, right now, the thing that I, I just don't feel that it represents the sport that I started in 1985, the sport of triathlon. And for me, a triathlete, you know, a pure triathlete who is somebody who can put the combination of swim, bike, run together. And the first person across the line who can, you know, put that combination together the best is the winner. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for me, you know, I mean, a great example is we saw the the IT World Champs a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, you know, so you had a certain individual win. And then the following week or two weeks later, he races in China and finishes in the 20s, you know. And for yeah. me, that's just not, not what it's about. And, yeah. you know, as far as I'm concerned, there, there isn't another sport where the top, where you basically don't have a domination. Um, you know, you look at tennis, you look at, you know, to a certain extent, you can argue, argue with Ironman racing. It's always consistently the top guys, you know, the fastest guys who are going to win. And yeah. I would just, I actually, I said to my wife, I said, you know, I'd hate to do a race where, where really, it, it's, as a race favorite, you're at a huge, huge, huge disadvantage. Mm -hmm. And uh, I kind of learned my lesson at the 2000 Olympics, you know, and I, I really was, from that point on, kind of turned off by the fact that, you know, I felt that as a race favorite or somebody who had a chance to win, you were always going to be disadvantaged. Yeah. Uh, in, 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 in that format, in that IT style format of racing. So after the uh, Sydney Games, did you actually hold hope in staying in the sport until Athens? Like, was that the goal, or we did you had you lost hope? You know, I I, I definitely had decided. It, it was fairly. Uh, it actually eventually became a fairly easy decision for me because I had moved to America uh, after the Commonwealth Games in two thousand and two. And of course, you know, here in America, the emphasis is purely on Ironman. There is absolutely no interest in, in ITU-style racing. And I had a number of uh, sponsorship opportunities, but primarily, all of them said, look, we will sponsor you if you do half Ironman, Ironman. We have absolutely no interest in backing you if you're going to go the ITU course. Wow. So, you know, for somebody who's obviously reliant on making a living out of the sport, it, it became a very, very, very easy decision. The back of me, I obviously had a disappointing Olympic Games, and not not really purely from my results. I never really got to experience the whole sort of Olympic type atmosphere. You know, if you remember in in Sydney, we were the very first mm. event, mm. and um, we were kind of in and out there. It was sort of a whirlwind tour, so we never really got to experience that whole Olympic at atmosphere, which you know, coming from any sport. As a young kid, you dream about going to the Olympics. It's the biggest mm. thing, you know, especially I grew up as a swimmer and a runner. So, uh, you know, you, of course, always had aspirations of, hey, maybe one day I can make it to the Olympics. But so, so I kind of had at the back of my mind felt that, well, I'd like to go to Athens. But really, for, you know, for me, Athens was going to be for myself. Whereas I felt in Sydney, I wasn't necessarily doing it for myself. Mm. You know, you had obviously sponsorship commitments. You had... Country expectations yeah. behind you, and it really ultimately was not something that I felt, you know, that that I was, you know, experiencing for myself. So, you know, you know, the whole process really. We had um, 
a performance director who, quite honestly, I was not getting on very well with. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and I know, you know, it's kind of funny because I know that in a lot of countries it's become an issue, but uh, basically the issue between athlete and national federation. And uh, the bottom line is they, I would say that uh, the performance program made it absolutely impossible for me to go. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had commitments here in America, um, and they wanted me to go off and do things which were basically not possible because I had, you know, races to do over here, et cetera, et cetera. And... Um, you know, I'd always been fairly outspoken about what I thought and what I was going to do and what I was not going to do. And for someone who sort of grew into the sport on my own, suddenly having somebody from an outside perspective telling me, hey, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, of course, I was a little bit resilient about that. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think on their behalf, they were fairly content that I kind of just walked away from it and it made their life a lot easier. Uh, when I say there, I mean the performance program. And Bottom line, it was like, you either conform to what we want you to do, otherwise, forget it, you're on your own, you can get lost, <laughs> yeah. I think. So, I, I got lost over here in America. <laughs> Doing well for it. How did you sort of, obviously, Hamish Carter was one of the guys you raced a lot um, in, the, in the early years, and, and he very much came from the old school. I mean, how did you sort of feel when he won Athens? Did you, did you think it was a vindication for, for the old school races? Without a doubt. I mean, I, I was definitely happy that Hamish did it, and... You know, again, for me, it was just proof that, uh, uh, you know, our era, you know, because you constantly hear, oh, well, the old era never raced as fast, et cetera, mm. et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the fact that you do, you do, or you did have people like Hamish obviously dominating the latter half of their career was, you know, great, gave me great satisfaction because, you know, basically, you know, the old guys are tough old bastards. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you, you know, I'd rather see Hamish win than quite a few other guys, to be honest with you. Mm. So, you know, I think ultimately he deserved to win as well, you know. Yeah. And he is an athlete. He's an all right, you know, he was an all-round athlete. I say was because obviously he's retired now. But, mm. you know, even if he was still racing today, he's an all-round athlete, strong in all three disciplines. And, yeah. you know, I remember Hamish back in the day when he was an awesome cyclist. Yeah. And uh, a lot of us, it was an issue to try and stay on Hamish's, you know, wheel. Not, not necessarily right behind his wheel. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so, um, <laughs> Ten meters apart, but, uh, <laughs> you know, so it, it, you know it, Hamish was a great swimmer and a, and a great runner, so definitely deservedly so. I mean, deservedly so he won, and I was happy for him, yeah. Hey, um, so would you like to see another triathlon event at the Olympics, like an Ironman distance or a time trial Olympic-sized distance? Yeah, you know, for me, and, and like I say, you know, this is always going to be a controversial subject, and I think a lot of the people who've been involved in, and I've been involved in the sport now for 22 years, and for a lot of us who've been in the sport for a long time, you know, for us, as I said earlier, the sport represents combining the three sports together, and whoever can put that combination together the fastest wins. Okay, okay so I definitely feel that um, even if they wanted to keep the draft legal type format, I think it would be great if they added another event, for example, a time trial. Yep. Uh, you know, two minutes apart, a minute apart, two minutes apart, etc., etc. And let's see who can do it. And I'm sure, I'm pretty sure you'd have a completely different type of athlete winning. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, I, and I think it, you know, it, it would be fairly, it would be exciting. It would be exciting to watch. It doesn't necessarily have to be over a long distance. And I know that, you know, for a lot of uh, a lot of Olympic programs, an Ironman would be you know, 
extremely tough to put on and obviously mm. yeah. <laughs> yeah you know you can imagine the logistics behind it as well yeah um, but so that that might be an issue but without a doubt I do think that you could have um, you know I'd like to see more more sort of indiv- the individual aspect to it you know so a time trial would be perfect yeah mm. so on to sort of um Obviously, a lot of our listeners are very much uh, iron junkies, and uh, part of the reason why we sort of got uh, thought I'll try and get Simon Simon Listing on the show is because last week we were looking through the start list for Kona, and we saw your name down there, and, and I'd sort of heard a lot of rumours that you weren't going back to Kona, and you were just going to focus on half Ironmans and so on. So, what's your sort of version of events, and, and how you're turning up at Kona this year? <laughs> <laughs> well... Um, I will be at Kona, but I won't be racing, that's for sure. Ah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure if you guys are aware of this, but I had fairly major back surgery in December. Um, I really struggled the whole of last year. I was diagnosed with two herniated discs and severe spinal stenosis, and I was in a situation where I could hardly bend down, let alone, you know, I ended up having about six spinal epidurals to get me through the season last year Crikey. and uh, the doctor the neurosurgeon who operated on me said I can't believe he even raced let alone you know race throughout the whole season so you know that that became an issue and it started um, February really started having problems in February 2006 and you know I kind of struggled through it and by December there was only one solution and that was surgery so um they ended up going in there at two levels and removing the two herniated discs on the one side and then the other side basically chiseling away the vertebra creating um, uh, creating more space for my spinal cord which was being impinged and pinched from both sides oh. and so basically my right leg completely shut down and you know at that stage beginning of this year you know I was really concerned about my future I have two young girls and you know I'm thinking you know, you tell me, doctor, is this going to be, you know, to the detriment of, of, of not my career necessarily, but what I'm going to be doing 10 years down the line. So, you know, he said, look, quite honestly, um, if you could stay away from Ironman right now, that would be the best solution. And he said, you don't necessarily have to give up the sport because what's there is there and, it's, you know, it's not, it's taken, you know, 25 years to get that way. So, um, I pretty much made a conscious decision um, early on in the year that I would just stick to 70.3 this year. Now, I qualified for Hawaii through Clearwater last mm. year. Top three, first, second, and third got, got Hawaii qualifying spots. And Craig and I basically both said, yeah, we're not sure if we'll do it next year, but hey, let's enter anyway. So that's kind uh, of okay. my spot. And, and so, um, you carry on. Yeah, carry on. Yeah, you carry on. So just in terms of Kona for you, where does that sort of sit you know, further down the track? Is it a burning aspiration you've got, or if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't? Um, you know, I'm in a very, very different phase, uh, or a very, very different... I, I regard myself in, as being in a very, very different situation to a lot of the guys out there. You know, I feel like um, I've done pretty much everything I've wanted to do in this sport, and... I'm pretty content with the with the results that I've had, and and I'm obviously you know I feel that I've worked hard for those results, and I've been fortunate enough to achieve what I've done. So right now, for me, everything that I do now is just basically a cherry on the top. Mm, yeah, and nice. So you know, you ask about you know the burning desire. 
Um, right now, it's not, you know, a die-all thing for me, quite honestly. No, and mm -hmm. I'll be the first to, you know, to say that. And I think <clears throat> for a lot of the guys out there who are doing Ironman, it, it is. Mm -hmm. And you need to have mm -hmm. the desire to get out there. And obviously, I mean, you guys, I think you've both raced there, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's hell. It's, you know, it's living hell, and uh, it's a tough race. And I and I said to my wife, um, you know, it's certainly not a race that you go there saying, well, I'll just see how it goes, and you know, we'll we'll see what happens. You know, if you're not ready for it, if you're not ready for it physically, if you're not ready for it mentally, and most likely more mentally than anything, yeah, you you're going to get your ass kicked, quite honestly. Yeah, and um, you know, I've had that. Re I mean, I've I've realized that right from the start. I went and watched Hawaii back in the mid-90s, and I said, oh, I'll, I remember saying to McKeeley Jones, oh, I'll never do an Ironman. This is crazy. I'll never do an Ironman. And I'll certainly never do an Ironman here in Hawaii. <laughs> you know, we kind of both agreed with each other back then. And, of course, you know, now I know never say never. But um, I would love to, to do Hawaii, and I, I would love to do it when I feel like I'm fit and healthy to do it. Uh, and I certainly don't think that... Uh, uh, you need to approach a race like that when you're not fit and healthy, and it just makes the whole experience miserable, quite honestly. And so, you know, I mean, I, again, I, I stepped into the whole Ironman thing fairly late in, in my career, and, you know, I made the conscious decision. Obviously, for me, during the 90s, it was all about short distance, and we had a lot of other things going on. We had the France Iron Tour. I don't know if you guys are aware of yeah, that. Yeah, event. definitely. Um, we had the... Um, the ITGP tour run by the yeah. Bray Brothers in Australia. Yeah. So there were, there were all those monetary and incentives from a pro perspective, but there were also very, very exciting races. And so there was a lot happening during the 90s, and the sport was just, you know, evolving from one year to the next with, with, with a lot of different formats of racing, and, and you know, I've, I've done all sorts of different crazy stuff. And... Um, you know, it's been fun, so I don't resent the fact that, you know, I didn't step into Iron Man any sooner. Um, the, the problem is, it's, it is, to a certain extent, a, a learning, a huge learning curve. And I don't think you can just step into it, even if you do have the talent, because you can't do an Iron Man on talent alone. You know, there's all the other aspects from nutrition and, uh, uh, you know, hydration, all those aspects, which, of course, in short distance racing, you never have to be to worry about really you know yeah. I used to race and I never even I never ate anything a couple of hours before the race I never drank anything during the race it was on pure effort and, and you know physical ability alone and of course you enter into a completely different realm uh, when you when you you know when you start doing Ironman so you know for me um, you know of course Lake Placid in 2004 was a great race I felt great all the way through 2005, I was having nutritional issues, and I couldn't really pinpoint what was going on. And then, uh, quite honestly, uh, I also now, in retrospect, realized that a lot of the, I think, not only nutritional issues, but also, I was always, I had chronic back pain in 2006 uh, when I competed, and I was throwing up as well in, at about a mile 80 on the return uh, uh, on the bike in Hawaii. But I think a lot of my, my back issues were kind of in disguise creeping up on me back then. So yeah, yeah. it's never one thing. That's the thing. You know, people, yeah. you know, you can never say, well, it's because I had this or it's because I didn't have this. You know, with, a, with, the, with the complexities of Ironman, it's always going to be a huge combination of factors. And, um, you know, so it's, 
it definitely hasn't been easy and it's been frustrating quite honestly um, yeah. you know frustrating because I, I had a great race first time out and then yeah. kind of struggled after that you know can I, can I ask Simon um you know, you, you, you know, you've achieved so much in the sport. You know, you're saying you're kind of at Suchiri on top stage now. Is it hard to maintain your motivation? Like, how do you still maintain your motivation at this stage in your career? It is. You know, you know it is. It is. And especially nowadays, uh, you know, I mean, great Cancun was, was a great example. You know, you're on the start line and there's, you know, there's guys who's, who are 12 years younger than you. <laughs> they all want to kick your butt. And... Um, you know, I think um, I've kind of gone full circle, and and I've said this to a number of different people. You know, I started out in the sport, and everything was great, new and exciting, and you'd achieve a goal, and everybody was really enthusiastic and su- supportive and yep. and happy for you. And then, you know, you go into a stage where, you know, you start dominating uh, races, and you know, people actually resent that, and they're like, mm-hmm. "Well, it's, let's hope he gets his, his butt kicked this time around." <laughs> mm-hmm. It's funny, that, isn't it? Not only that, but you know, as I say, you lose you lose your reason for doing it, and, I'll, and ultimately, you find you're doing it not for yourself, but you're doing it for everybody else around you. And I'm kind of, kind of now in that full circle where I've really got to a stage where I'm like, you know what, I am doing this for myself, and I want to get the satisfaction, and I want to go and do races that I want to do that I enjoy. You know, from a training perspective, a lot of it is, I, or I've always had a tendency to train hard. Yeah, we've heard that. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, it's just like brushing my teeth. I go out there and I'll, and I actually get, you know, we, we have a little group here and, uh, you know, we go out there and we try and punish each, punish each other <clears throat> every day. And, uh, you, you know, that, that, that's become an, auto, an, autom- <clears throat> an automatic response, really. So it's not something... I'm not concerned that, hey, I'm not putting in the effort. I'm certainly putting in the effort, and uh, in a way, I kind of thrive on that. And, you know, the funny thing is Dave Scott uh, does quite a bit of training with me, and, and although he's 53, he's just the same as me, and that's why we get on as friends. We get on really well because we kind of have that same mindset. Yep. And uh, we're always playing games, you know, and Dave likes to get out there and come and, you know, see if he can punish the young guys. And <laughs> obviously... My objective is to try and lap Dave as many times as I can in the pool. And it, <laughs> you know, it, it is it is very entertaining, but um, you know there are times where it, it is hard, and you say, "Well, what am I doing this for? I'm so sick and tired of doing swim, bike, and run for 22 years now. Mm. I want to do something different." And it, it, and especially as you know, I, without a doubt, the the young guys are more motivated, and um, they are still out to prove themselves, and they out to prove a point and mm. I think a lot of the athletes in, in my situation you know our, our mindset's a little different um, you know like I say triathlon's been great it's fun and it's and, and of course it's had, it's had its ups and downs but I'm also a father now of two young girls and I'm a husband and I yeah. have a lot of other things going on in my life which which you know the realization that for me, you know, triathlon is not everything. And, of course, it's still funny when you walk around the country like America and you talk to somebody on the plane next to you and you mention triathlon, <laughs> and they still really don't know what you're talking about. You know? mm. It doesn't happen so, down here yeah, in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I'm just saying, again, it brings the realization that we are, you know, the reality is we are still a fairly small sport, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, it, I'm not, you know, it's evolving, it's growing, and that's absolutely fantastic for everybody. Um 
but uh, it, it is it's also a reality check I think and um, um, kind of humbling isn't it what was that a kind of humbling you know brings yeah, you back down to earth well, and of course yeah. you know yeah, humbling without a doubt and I think uh, of course living in in, uh, in the Boulder envi- environment which is obviously a complete and utter endurance mecca and sports mecca I mean you have obviously Olympic cyclists you know I'm living literally uh, a half a mile down the road from where all the Kenyans are based <laughs> uh, you know and these you're talking about guys who are doing two or four two or five wow. um, <laughs> you know you're completely surrounded by um, you know every every sort of sort of uh, champion you can think of and so that is very much humbling as well you know you can't walk around a place like this with any sort of attitude because you're soon going to be put into place. <laughs> True. <laughs> so when, when you're going out there and you're smashing Dave Scott and you're smashing any young pretender... And I must butt in here. I was talking to a few of the boys who are in Colorado and they're saying, when you go same train with Simon, it's game on from the start. There's no mucking around. <laughs> so are you out there using heart rate monitors very much and power meters and all those sorts of tools or is it really based on feeling these days? Uh, with me, without a doubt, it's being it's based on feeling and also you know also experience. Without a doubt, I, I know how I'm feeling. I don't need a heart rate monitor to tell me when I'm at threshold. Um, yeah. And you know, yes, yesterday we did 120 kilometers. We averaged, we actually climbed for uh, 40 minutes, and we averaged 39 k an hour. Uh, and you know, a friend of mine has a power power meter. He's like, "Oh, are we pushing 520 watts right now?" I'm like. Yeah, whatever. You know, I think I think people I think people get wrapped up, and I think it's it, it is becoming a huge mistake. People are are not learning to to assess themselves, and are relying too much on heart rate monitors, too much on on power meters. And I do I do think that if you're on your own and you're you're an individual that whether you're a pro age group or whatever who doesn't have a training environment where they can join other people it does become definitely a training aid but I, what I also find here you have a lot of sort of uh, wannabe pros and they locked in on the whole numbers thing and so much so that even when you go out on a group ride they're quite happy to get dropped because they want to keep their heart rate at a certain level or their coaches told them that they're not allowed to you know uh, exceed so many watts and I'm saying well wait a minute what about your that warrior spurs what about getting in there and, it, you know, there's something about pushing yourself, and pushing yourself in a group is obviously a huge, huge benefit. Um, you know, I mean, we all have egos. We don't like to get... Yeah. Um, yep. You know, I mean, I, and I, I think so. My whole point to this is that really I think that you never really, if you're too reliant on numbers, you never really learn to assess yourself. And, of course, if you can't do that in training, how on earth are you going to do that in racing? Mm. Uh, I think uh, yeah, they've just got to be used in moderation, haven't they? And and tools to understand your perceived effort, and um, and I think that's where it helps the the new guys as they don't know their correct perceived effort, and once they've got it locked in. Yeah, I mean, I also feel I also feel that um, you know a lot of the young the young guys, and I even saw this um, you know five six seven years ago, the eighteen nineteen year olds coming to the sport, they have a coach telling them what to what to do three times a day, when to wipe their butt. Uh, <laughs> So they, they really are, they, you know, they told them what intensity to go, you know, how, literally every single second of their training, and not only training, but also outside of that, is dictated by somebody else. So they never learn uh, really how to 
they, they never really, really learn about their own development and their own selves and what they are capable and what they're not capable of. Mm. So, you know, from a younger level, that that's also, um, uh, you know, I think a, a concern to a certain extent. Um, I remember when, you know, Brad and I used to go, hell, I was sleeping in my bike bag, camping, doing whatever <laughs> I could to make it. Now, I'm, not, I'm not, you know, that's not... I did it because I had to do it. Of course, if I, if, I, uh, if I could have been given the opportunity to have it a little bit easier, that would have been great. But on the other side of it, I did learn a lot about myself, not only as an athlete, but as an, as an individual as well. Yeah. And I think it doesn't matter whether you speak to Greg Welsh, whether you speak to Brad, or any of the old school. We all come through that, and you know, times have changed without a doubt. So what are you going to do in a typical training week for you? Yeah? Talk us through your week. Um, I generally... I've never been a huge volume guy. It's been always more about intensity than volume. And, you know, as, as much as I said I've been injured the last, you know, year and a half, too, you know, prior to that, I've, I've never, never, never been injury prone at all. So um, I think that sort of speaks volumes about, you know, going out and doing crazy mileage. I do feel um, that a lot of people are, and specifically Ironman guys, are obsessed with volume. <laughs> and, um, you know, even when I trained for Lake Placid, I, I really did not that much uh, mega miles. Mm. Um, you know, right now for the 70.3, I'm probably swimming. I generally try and swim, bike, run uh, mo- at least five times a week in each of those three disciplines. Mm-hmm. So five swims, five bikes, five runs. Um, one of the runs will be an interval workout. Um, I'm trying to stay away from the track because I'm kind of burnt out on the track now. Yeah. You know, all the way through the 90s, I go and hammer myself on the track, and now I kind of just feel nauseous when I see a track. <laughs> uh, I feel like throwing up. Like, oh, are you okay? Are you, are you bulimic? It's <laughs> the track. So we, you know, we, we have... Um, um, uh, I actually have a, a group going right now, and we've been doing sort of five-click slash interval workouts um, uh, around the reservoir here in Bolden primarily. Uh, and those generally last for about 30, 30 minutes of intensity. Um, and we, so we do that once a week. We have uh, one very hard group ride, which generally equates to about 56 miles, 90, 90K. And we'll sort of do that in about uh, just... I suppose about 205 or so. Mm. Um, that's, that's pretty much a hammer session, and um, you know, you either come along and you enjoy it. Desiree tried to come the other day, she lasted about half a mile, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Sharing the love, eh? She's been t- doing too many <laughs> photo shoots. <laughs> the guy's ego has got the best of that, so. <laughs> um, uh, so it's you know one hard run, one one hard bike. We try you know my long rides really now are between three three and a half hours, but again at a fairly high intensity. Um, it's not you know it's pretty hard. And then uh, swimming, I generally find swim hard three times a week, and the rest are, are, are recovery, are essentially recovery workouts. Nice. Average, average bike ride will be about two hours of bike ride. Uh, average run at this stage will probably be about forty five to fifty minutes. Oh, with a long, I do. I do do a long run as well of uh, about an hour twenty to an hour thirty. Wow, it's interesting. Isn't it? Hey, uh, so um, what was your idea on or your thoughts on the drafting in I'm in the distance? Do you think it should be shorter, longer? Where are you at with that? Okay, well, my view, <laughs> especially uh, we love your honesty. What I think they need to do is uh, twenty meter gap. 
<laughs> oh, really? Without a, without a doubt, especially in a race like Hawaii. I mean, it's it's just a, it's just a huge drop there. Now I'll I'll be the first to admit it because I've been in it. You know, uh, it's 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 very very unfair, quite honestly. And you know that's why I'm, uh, if somebody can get away on the bike and win like that, all all hats off to them because uh, there's about 25 guys back there, and it uh, is a lot easier when you're stuck in that group right now at that sort of seven to ten meter zone. I feel I really feel that in the future they're going to have to address the issue of um, number of pros. I think there should be 50 pros max. Mm. Um, they should have more draft marshals. I really feel that they should have must probably one draft marshal for four athletes. Yeah. And they need to address um, they need to address the drafting immediately. As I say, there's always going to be that pretty big pack that comes out in about 50 you know 50 minutes or so, 50 51 minutes. And unless uh, you know you pounce on these guys immediately, those packs form. And I do think that 10 meters is not enough in a in a windy environment like Hawaii. It, it needs to be more than that. And I think they need to make it harsher. Honestly, I do feel that uh, uh, you could almost argue, you know, you out straight away. You call drafting, you out. De DQ'd. Yeah. Uh, consequences will be harsh, but people will take it seriously. You know, mm -hmm. they won't be prepared to take the risks that people are that are that you know that people, that the guys are taking right now. So, you know, it's it's a it's a hard it's a hard race to call, and I and I and I just feel that they need to have more numbers, more distance between, and, and less athletes. Quite yeah. honestly, it's a funny one because if we a lot of guys, you know, there's more and more Ironmans every year, and there's more and more athletes qualifying. Yeah, yeah. And I don't feel that I don't feel that all the pros qualifying for a while are necessarily. They should, I don't think they should necessarily be racing in the pro field. Well, bottom line, the perfect example is the Ironman New Zealand this year. The pro slots rolled all the way down. You know, Bevan and I both yeah. had woeful races and yeah. doing you know 940 and stuff, and we could have easily qualified. So I think yeah, I agree with yeah. that. Yeah, and it's kind of funny. Every pro that we've um, interviewed on the show on the show has said we don't want any drafting in Hawaii make the zone bigger but nothing seems to be happening so it uh, seems to be quite frustrating well, you know, on the other hand you also have to be careful because there's also a percentage of pros who say yeah yeah we don't want any drafting but we kind of like sitting seven years behind and so you also have to realize that there is transparency amongst the pros and uh, you know the weaker guys are going to say, "Yeah, I kind of like, uh, I kind of like this rule right now." You know? mm, yeah, um, which makes so, sense, doesn't it? Of course, if you're a strong cyclist and a weak swimmer, of course you're going to be emphatic about, you know, and irate about the drafting that goes on. But it it forms and it forms almost immediately at the beginning of the bike, and it has to be addressed straight away. You have to eliminate. And I still, you know, the last two years that I did it was seven meters from front wheel to back wheel, which really is five meters. Yeah, it's yeah. drafting. It yeah. is drafting. It, it's basically become an IT race. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's why, you know, the two years that I did it, Norman won and Saris won, and great for them. And I was very, very happy that they did it like that. Yeah. You know, because no one else really ultimately deserved to win. Mm. So, uh,. It, it it has to be addressed, and I think there comes a time when WTC really have to start um, accepting the fact that there's an issue, and uh, and it's going to become controversial, you know. So, so not just to say that it's not not already controversial. No, that's definitely not. So obviously going on to WTC, I mean. Um 
it sounds like you don't feel like they're, they're addressing a lot of the athletes' needs. I mean, do, how do you sort of feel they... Do, do you feel they're doing a good job? Are they dishing out enough prize money? Um, and do you think that Ironman racing is heading in the right direction? Well, I'm going to chuck in 70.3 here as well. And I certainly don't think that uh, there's enough prize money in 70.3. And I think that... Uh, you know, I think that hopefully that's something that they will address in the future. Um, you know, Ironman as well. I mean, really, apart from Hawaii, most of the majority of the other races have very, very poor prize money. And I, you know, both McKee and I, one of the reasons why we never raced Ironman in the 90s was because we were making a good living out of short-distance racing. And I can still say right now that the living we were making then is still way better than anything uh, that's offered out there right now, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. So... Um, you know, people say, oh, the sport's moving forward, and, well, for me, it, it, it actually, in that regard, has not moved forward. It's actually worse. You know, we worse off than we were 10 years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As a short actually, I can say that. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, again, we've tried, and, and I remember the first time we've tried to create athlete organizations. The problem is, is that there, there really isn't a coherent group of athletes who all agree on the same things. Mm. People say, people say one thing. Athletes say one thing, but when actually, when it comes down to crunch time, there's always going to be a percentage you want to run off and get an easy race in here or mm. do this, do that. So that has to be addressed. A lot of the issues right now could be addressed if the athletes were prepared to stand together. Mm. Number one, you know, if you can get a, if you can get a sort of uh, union of types and an agreement amongst athletes. You know, we would have one voice, but until then, we we don't have a voice. You know, and we never will have a voice, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a catch twenty two because, um, you know, there's always athletes trying to make a living, trying to you know, and if they can get five thousand dollars for winning some arbitrary Ironman somewhere, mm-hmm. well, go and do it. You know. Yep. Meanwhile, the best thing we should be doing is discussing with the organizers and discuss discussing with the people responsible, saying, wait a minute, we just don't feel that. Uh, We've been treated fairly here, you know? Yep. So, you know, so again, I think a lot of it stems to athletes' responsibilities and, uh, you know, especially athletes who are in it for the long term. um, Uh, People who are committed to making, you know, a career out of it. And when I say career, they're not just going to go and do one or two Ironmans while they have a teaching job. These are people who are going to be involved for, you know, 10, potentially 15 years, you know? Yeah. Yep. Do, um, what do you think about drugs in the sport and triathlon in general? Do you think uh, A is there much of it, and B, you know, is it kind of policed that well? Uh, I certainly don't think it's policed very well. When you say triathlons in general, um, I mean you're referring to the whole sport. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, well, both. Probably, or probably more to Ironman in perspective, because we, we understand, you know, most of the Olympic programs are getting tested better, but it's, we, we interviewed Bella Comerford a few weeks ago and uh, and she said she practically never gets tested. Yeah, I mean, I would agree that obviously a lot more can be done, yeah. without a doubt. Yeah. And, um, you know, especially as, uh, you know, there are, I mean, a race like Hawaii, obviously, you know, Hawaii, there's the potential to make a very good income out of it. So, and what I'm saying is the incentive is there, really. You know, I remember Dave always, Dave always used to say, well, I used to race for a T-shirt. Oh, I want a T-shirt. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so I think, you know, back then, um, 
you know, a lot of the athletes were doing it really primarily for the pure love of the sport, and there wasn't necessarily the the, the, the cheating incentives that that there are, or the carrot that's dangling out there in front that there is today. Um, and I do think that um, obviously because of cycling and the influence that has, even on a sport like ours, there is always going to be a percentage of guys who are prepared to play around with it, and we've mm-hmm. seen it. You know, we've seen it a number of times with various positive tests over the last three or four years. And I'm not going to mention any names, but you know who those people are. So it's there. Without a doubt, it's there. And I think it's only going to get worse, mm. quite honestly, unless, uh, unless we have a sort of coherent uh, you know, protocol of testing. And not only testing at events, but uh, out-of-competition testing. You know, again, I, I'm a guy here, sitting here. I can't, rem- I can't The last time I had an out-of-season or out-of-competition doping control was when I was living in the UK five years ago. Wow. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? So, <laughs> you know, the, the U.S. really aren't interested in me because I'm not a U.S. athlete and, and I don't have a British, uh, uh, ra- I don't have a British uh, license. I'm not a member of the British uh, Triathlon Association, so they're not, they're not interested in me. So here's a guy who I could potentially be taking, you know... <laughs> Some good stuff. Uh, all sorts of, all sorts of uh, things. Um, just some, some kind of quick random questions. Some quick random questions. Over the years, who's been your toughest competitors? Who's been my toughest competitor? Yeah, yeah. You know, who, who was the you know the the guy who just you know you always knew game day was on? Um, well, if you go back quite a few years, um, the one guy that I always had to look out for uh, in short distance racing was Brad. You know, mm. Brad Bevan was always there. And you knew if Brad was on the start line, it was going to be an extremely hard race. And uh, Brad and I trained together for many years, so we have a, I think we have a mutual respect for each other. But he was as tough as nails, bottom line. And again, I always enjoyed training with Brad because he used to like hurting himself, as, you know, and we used to go out there. There would never be any argument. We would just get out there, meet at a certain point at this time, and he would be there, and off you go. Um, I mean, again, another guy who was always going to be pretty tough back then was, was Mike Pig. Um, again, yeah. the guy, you knew if he was at the race, you were going to have a hard time on the bike, and you'd have to play catch-up on the run, bottom yeah. line. So, you know, there's a, I mean, there is a number of people who have gained my respect, and uh, again, there's a number of people who, <clears throat> I'm an athlete, who've gained my respect, and... and you know, Two. quite honestly, <laughs> I, had, I had the cocky attitude of thinking, yeah, I'm an athlete, yeah, they're slow, they can't do this, they can't do that. And, of course, moving up has given me, um, you know, appreciation for, for what it's really about. And and I get annoyed now, and I've actually had to tell a number of people um, that don't don't start knocking Ironman athletes because these guys are tough. You know, these guys are tough, and they're extremely talented at what they do. And uh, I constantly now bump into short distance guys, and they, you know, they, you know, they mock. They say, "Oh, well, a guy's done a 255 marathon or a 250 marathon," and they equate it to what they're running their 10k times. And I'm like, "You guys don't even, you know, you can't even imagine yeah. until you get out there and put yourself through, you know, put yourself through that. Little, little, and even a half Ironman, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's a tough event. So, um, you know, it's." Uh, and I think again, it's always easy to do well at one race. It's hard to be consistent. Yeah. And that's the key to it is consistency. And 
you know, it's always easy, easy to win one, one specific race, but to go and do it time and time again or to go and do well at a certain certain distance time and time again, that's the challenging part, you know? Just, uh, just another... Again, oh. you look, you I mean, the, amazing, the amazing thing is you look at, uh, you know, what Mark and Dave did. Yeah. Or, or, you know, 1989, those guys, you know, no one really still comes close to what they were doing in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of arguments about you know how they did it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the bottom line is, someone like Dave ran two. What did he run? Two forty. Two forty. Two forty. Two forty. Two forty. Two. Yeah. In a two thirty nine. So uh, you know, of course, um, you know, I'm not going to go and rattle off. Names, yeah, yeah. Um, well, just one more quick random question. John's giving me the the hurry up, but um, with. Well, I interviewed Mecca earlier this year, um, and he was just talking about in his day how he just had so much respect for uh, your mental game, how, you know, the year he won the World Champs, the next year he went along and he thought, you know, I'll show you sing, and he just said you had swallowed him up even before you had the race started. The mental side, obviously, uh, Mecca? Chris McCormick. Chris McCormick. No, I think I've heard of him. Where's he from? <laughs> <laughs> so then, you, you know, like, how, how do you go about playing the mental game? Or how important has that been to your career? Yeah, I think a lot of people have asked me, well, do you, you know, have you seen a sports psychologist and what exercises do you practice to, you know, you know to get yourself through, through difficult parts of, of, of racing? I think a lot of it comes down to temperament. And... Um, you know, I'm a. <laughs> I've always been kind of tough. First of all, I've been tough on myself. I, I don't ever remember when I've actually been satisfied with a race. Mm-hmm. And even when I used to win, you know, the short distance world champs, and to a certain extent, even when I I did well at you know various seventy point three races or 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 even you know late classes, I never felt satisfied. So the the point is that I was always going out trying to do better, trying to. Do, to, to do better because I was my own worst crit- critic, you know, and, and even my wife said, hey, you're a bit hard on yourself. Just think about what you've just done, you know? Yeah. And mm. so and only now am I starting to really appreciate um, results that I may have had, you know, eight, you know, nine, ten years ago. Um, um, what was the question again? So just, you know, how, how you approach the mental game, did, you know, how you, you know, obviously you're a presence. And did you try to psych people um, out? Not at all, not at all. I think, um, uh, you know, for me, as I said before, a lot of the time when I'm racing, you, you're very consumed about what you're doing yourself. And I even find this right now through through 70.3 races. I'm not too concerned about everybody around me. I'm more concerned about just focusing my energy on, on myself and assessing where I am. And, uh, you know, of course... Um, I, I, I do get some satisfaction of, of knowing that maybe I'm potentially hurting somebody who's trying to keep up or you know, <laughs> catching somebody up. And, but, but then we all do, you know, and, yeah. and it doesn't matter what level we are. You know, triathlon's a tough sport, and, and it takes a lot of hard asses to do it, quite honestly. And mm. it doesn't matter what level you are, just to do a triathlon, it's not an easy thing. It's not like playing ping pong, you know. It's, mm. it's a very physically demanding sport, and, and it's, and I think it takes a certain type of mentality to, to get anybody through um, Ironman, I, you know. And, and I remember at a number of Ironman races I've been at, I always feel feel more respectful for the guys who are out there, you know, racing yeah. you know, 15, 15 yeah. hours 
and thinking they have been out there for 16 hours. I couldn't imagine. And, and again, uh, my involvement over the last couple of years with various camps, etc., I also have a respect for a lot of the, the professional. When I say professionals, I mean professional age groupers. You know, these are people who have jobs, they have families, and on top of that, they're putting in you know endless hours of, of training. And for me, um, I have almost more respect for that than I do um, a, a so-called you know professional triathlete who's you know lying on the couch uh, when he's not out training. Yeah. Um, and and and, and that, that really doesn't have those sort of responsibilities. So uh, mm-hmm. it does take uh, an unbelievable willpower when you're working, and you know, of course, the types of people that that do our sport are generally, you know, people who are in you know fairly su- successful or, or uh, responsible positions. And when you chuck all of that into the into, into the into into the spectrum, it uh, you know the willpower has to be unbelievable. Um, you know. For, 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 for the age group on, on, on a halt to get through it, you know? Yeah, totally. So, so obviously... Yeah, we, we, in a way, we can rely on, our, on, on a bit of talent that gets us through it as well. <laughs> and uh, you think about some of these guys who, who are not so talented, you know? Yeah, nice. yeah. So obviously a big part of your um, career has been, been a long career is, is just making sure you've got good sponsors on board. Yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about the sponsors you've got at the moment and perhaps any tips you might have for people who are looking to get sponsors? <laughs> I'm not going to give me tips. <laughs> Keep your cards close to your chest. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I've, um, I've kind of, I, I really have had two phases, and I have sort of had a European phase of sponsorship, and uh, I benefited from that primarily because uh, we had this huge build-up into into the 2000 Olympics. And so there was a lot of uncertainty where our sport was going. And I think a lot of companies decided to gamble on triathlon and say, you know what, this is going to be the next best thing. And so they were prepared to, they were around, you know, really I'm talking from 1995 to 2000, there were a lot of companies who were prepared to put, uh, put money behind the sport um, as individuals. And again, I think, you know, back then from 1990 to 1998, there was a domineering group of athletes. You know, there was a, essentially a group of athletes, no matter where they raced, you knew that they were going to finish first, second, third, fourth, or fifth. Yep. Unlike today. You know, now you go and see half these races out there and who's going to win. You have no idea who's going to win. Mm. So it's not, so what I'm saying is the short distance racing is really not creating stars. Yep. And it's hard to back somebody because really there's no guarantee that you're going to get the exposure. Mm. Uh, so that, that, that's a huge issue right now that I feel uh, will remain an issue under the current format of, of IT racing. You know, it really does, the sport has not created short distance stars, uh, really over the last seven years. Um, so that's one, one side. So I, again, getting back to it, I think I, I managed to, to, to be in the right place at the right time with regards to the whole 2000 Olympic build-up because people with, you know, people meaning companies were, we're very interested in the sport, thinking that you know this potentially is going to be the next big sport. Of course, I don't feel that the IT went and exploited the situation the way they should have, but mm. uh, that's the way it was. And then I moved over in 2002. I kind of moved over to the U.S. and now I have really purely U.S.-based sponsors. Um, uh, I have approximately 10 sponsors in total. 
Uh, I still have Mavic. In fact, it's the one only remaining sponsor that uh, I first signed with Mavic in 1990. So it's been 17. <laughs> wow, great. So people want, you know, I, I see a lot of you know people's comments. Why? Why is he wearing those? I mean, why is he using those wheels? Uh, blah 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 blah. But uh, I definitely feel that uh, it's been a great company to work with, with, with a great product, of course. Um, mm-hmm. But really, uh, right now, um, I mean, you could. I mean, I'm not going to go and list all my, my sponsors, but yeah. I've had, uh, you know, huge support from 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 really uh, the same sponsors, uh, all of the same sponsors while I've been in the U.S. Nice. So, uh, and I think that's important. And you say if you ask one, ask for one tip of advice, is not to flip flop sponsors. And yes. you know, when I in Europe, I had Nike for ten years, I had Oakley for you know fourteen or fifteen years. Um, you know what I'm saying is, is that there's a loyalty involved, and unless, uh, and, and of course, it helps to develop relations, you know, within the company. And uh, there are a lot of guys who just from one year to the next are in and out of sponsors. You, ne- you know, you never really can identify a certain product with a certain athlete because every year they're riding, riding, mm-hmm. or using something different. Yeah. Uh, but it, you know, it is tough, and I think ultimately. Sponsorship comes if you have the right personality and the results to back that personality. Yep, totally. And uh, it's unrealistic to think that hey, I finished twenty fifth and thirtieth in in an Ironman, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna ask for sixty thousand dollars sponsorship. Mm-hmm. If only, eh? You're gonna get the door shut in your face. But you know, way. What was that? Uh, if only, you know. So, so what's um, going to be life after racing for Simon? Um, you're obviously sort of coming to the twilight of your career. We noticed on your website you're doing a little bit of coaching, a few camps here and there. Is that sort of the direction you, you plan to head in? Yeah, yeah, I think. Um, and again, you know, this actually sort of sort of mixes nicely with the with the topic of sponsorship because what I've what I've really going to start from January 2008 is is a, co- a big surprise, but an online mm. coaching business. Nice. And uh, actually, uh, I'm I'm going to be sort of running the U.S. entity and uh, British uh, British triathlete Richard Allen, who uh, was on the British team with me yeah. as a reserve in 2000. Is he, he's actually done very well out of a, a coaching business in the U.K. right now. So he's sort of coming under the we're calling it challenge uh, challenge coaching. Nice. So he will be challengecoaching.co.uk, and I'll be challengecoaching.com. Yeah, yep. Cool. And we 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 have another friend of ours who's also been a, a very very high level uh, triathlete who's who is a programmer, and we're going to have a fairly unique uh, program put in place. Oh, great. Um, so, so people can sign on and obviously get coached from anywhere in the world, and uh, you know they can visit those sites coming the first of January two thousand and eight. But I'm also going to run three camps next year. One is going to be orientated around the inaugural Ironman China race. Oh, nice. So we're going to put on a camp uh, in in February using, obviously, the facilities and, and obviously, you know, basically going over the whole Ironman China um, protocol, event, venue, et cetera, et cetera. And we have quite a bit of involvement from the local uh, government and support because, and obviously the race director because they want to... Um, Make sure that everything's going well for their race. So nice. That should be fairly exciting, <clears throat> and really the target market there is Asia. So you know Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, all yep. of those sort of communities that that, that do triathlon. And uh, the first camp 
sorry, I meant not didn't mention the first camp all Lanzarote in, in January. Nice. Which is kind of a kickstart, a kickstart to the uh, 2008 season. Get uh, some of that uh, roast turkey and. <laughs> oh, Lanzarote, eh? <laughs> Lanzarote—that's what the listeners call it. Yeah, Lanzarote. Yeah, but um, you know, if you actually look at the location, Lanzarote is a great location because it's really not far for for Europeans to travel to, and it's obviously night and day with regards to weather. You know, you talk about UK weather in January, <laughs> and then when you travel three hours south by aeroplane, and you can you're going to be in the twenties, you know, twenty degrees Celsius. So that's you know, it's a nice environment and. And then the third camp we're going to do is going to be uh, here in Boulder in July. Nice. Uh, next year. And again, all of these camps will be seven-day camps focusing primarily on training. Good. Uh, I think a lot of camps you go to nowadays, uh, a lot of these guys, a lot of campers, get a, you know, they get a little bit irritated because they spend too much time talking about this, that, and the next thing and not enough, do, not enough time doing, you know, not enough time training. Exactly. So a lot of these... So the camps that we're doing are going to be focused or orientated around specific events, and it's going to be a great opportunity for people to get out there and basically hammer themselves for seven days at, at whatever level they are, but, yep. you know, get a, a seven-day period of consistent training. Nice. And we, we, will address, we will address, you know, all aspects of the sport, but, you know, there, there will be a lot of... They'll come out tired. Yeah. Um, and then the other the other branch of what I'm doing is I'm actually linking up with a uh, a very big run group here, and we're creating a um, sort of a resident triathlon group, catering towards age groupers. And uh, ironically, a place like Boulder doesn't really have that, so it's going to again give uh, age groupers uh, the chance to join on for an eight week program to Olympic distance or a twelve week program to an Ironman, and we're going to you know. We're going to focus on, on key events throughout the after the season, and, and they'll basically come in and pay for for that for that twelve week program or whatever they want, and oh, we'll nice. do about six sessions a week. Oh wow, so, good. Um, so just remind us yeah. of those websites again. Um, well, the coaching the the camps website is uh, challenge uh, dot com. Nice. And the coaching site will be challengecoaching.com. dot com. Nice. Oh. Challenge-coaching.com. Nice. And again, you know, you. Sorry, yeah. You go ahead. Uh, I, I think this is also, you know, again coming coming back to my sponsors. This is giving them the opportunity to to sort of get involved with that, and I think they see the benefit, meaning that it's not just a pro isolating himself in his house and going to races, and and not being accessible. And I think yep. with my involvement with all of these various projects. It just be, basically means that I'm becoming far more accessible to to, to public people that mm. uh, that are you know that I'll that my sponsors are, are targeting really. Um, We'll put a, um, a link up on the site for all the listeners, yep, yep. Um, just through to Simon's site and those sites, so they can get more information. But man, thank you so much for the amount of time you spent with us. Yeah, uh, it's I mean, been fantastic. Um, for me personally, it's it's always great to reminisce on um, things like the Iron Tour and all the stuff that I saw you doing early in your career that a lot of people these days don't know a lot about. So um, I really enjoyed that, and uh, great to see that you're going to be staying involved in the sport and, and all the very best for the rest of the year. Thanks, yeah. I mean, I will be racing next year, don't get me wrong. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll be looking out for you, mate. Don't worry. We'll be looking out for you. You, you, make, you make me sound like I've retired already. <laughs> <laughs> we'll catch up when you retire. <laughs>
you got to come to Boulder so I can, uh, you know. So you can drop us in a K. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be there, maybe next year. Awesome. Thank okay. you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks, Simon. Okay, take care, guys. Okay, we're back, and it's Simon Nissing. We haven't listened to you, do you, so you have more insight than us, but uh guy was a legend. He was indeed. Fan, yeah, one of those athletes like uh, Brownlee, where you go into a race and you go, okay, Lessing's going to win almost every single time. Um, so, And he did. He delivered. It's kind of like Langer nowadays. It is. <laughs> but, but the thing was with Lessing, you picked it before the race. Langer, you didn't. There you go. Uh, John, just quickly, our patrons. We've got uh, Dana, the dangerous deliverer, Cowper. And, and uh, who else? I've got them in front of me. Daniel Daman Costello. Daman. <laughs> and Chris Shreddit Schrader. Okay, if you want to become a patron of the show, go www.imtalk.me. Also, I was going to say big thanks to our sponsor. Extreme Endurance. Uh, your lactic buffer. If you want to get the show emailed to you, you can just go to the website. It's all on there. Uh, you want coaching, coachjohnnewsome.com. My podcast is at bevanjamesisles.com. And if you want to email us, it's imtalkpodcast at gmail.com. John, any other goss? No, it's Christmas Day. What so are you doing New Year's? New Year's. Uh, we're going to stay with some friends in Nelson. Did you get pretty rackers? No. We'll be up till midnight, but then I think everybody will retire fairly quickly. No ruckusness. Bevan, what are you doing? We're camping at Glendale with, with porn on the crew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're going brickering with John Hancock. I might be. I might be. Well, no, it's not might be. If he says he's got stuff, it's happening. I wouldn't be. I wouldn't mind. I'm just not sure how keen I... Yeah, okay, I'll do no, it. No, you're doing it. Okay. Because, hey, I'm committed. Mm. You know, it's Christmas Day and I've eaten too much, so I need to do some brickering. Exactly. I, I have to admit... Brickering does appeal to me, and I'm not a great swimmer. Mm-hmm. But A, you can use fins. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, it, I like the adventure side of it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of cool. Anyway, let's wrap it up. I'm Russ. I'm Train hard. Train smart. Kick, Kick high. high.